Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Today, you will hear firsthand how the American government argued to take away from its citizens a powerful right many of them don't even know they possess. That right, given to American citizens by law and via the First Amendment, is the right to report major crimes and evidence of those crimes to a special grand jury made up of regular citizens to review and investigate for possible prosecution. To exercise this right, a citizen or citizens must submit a petition reporting the crimes to the government via the U.S. Attorney's Office, who then by law has to give that petition to a special grand jury made up of fellow citizens to review. At a U.S. Court of Appeals hearing held on January 21, 2022, a lawyer representing the U.S. Attorney's Office argued before a panel of three judges that his office did not have to deliver citizens' petitions reporting crimes to a grand jury for review. Why would he do that when the law and First Amendment say otherwise? Was it because the government doesn't want a special grand jury of citizens reviewing the petition for which the hearing was being held, a petition that details evidence of explosives having been pre-planted in the World Trade Center buildings to go off on 9-11, a petition that goes against the official government narrative? Attorney Mick Harrison, litigation director for the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, who oversaw the drafting of the petition, is here today to explain how the case landed in the Court of Appeals and to walk you through the hearing. He is joined by another Lawyers Committee attorney, Charlotte Dennett. Full disclosure, I am on the Lawyers Committee board and work with both attorneys on the committee's mandate to promote transparency and accountability regarding 9-11 events. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Good to be Hi here. There. So let's start, Mick, with a brief backgrounder on how you got to this court hearing. I started with a petition to the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York and uh, to the Special Grand Jury in New York. It was a detailed scientific legal document. It summarized a great deal of evidence about the use of explosives at the World Trade Center on 9-11 that led to the destruction, complete destruction of three buildings, uh, World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7, which unfortunately led to a great loss of life on 9-11. And the point of the petition was to ask for an investigation and for the federal grand jury to use, <coughs> use its own judgment as to what this evidence meant, how it should be further investigated, whether there should be indictments, and whether there should be a public report of possible government misconduct regarding those crimes. It seemed like a simple request. We just wanted our petition delivered to the special grand jury. Now, how that led to the recent oral argument in the second highest court in this country was that the U.S. attorney refused to deliver the petition to the special grand jury. Um, Why? The reason given uh, to us was that the federal rules of criminal procedure has a secrecy requirement regarding grand jury proceedings, which the U.S. attorney interpreted to prevent them from telling even us, the com basically the complaining witness, whether our complaint was delivered to the grand jury or not. Uh, that makes no sense. I agree with you. Uh, we explained that to the U.S. attorney. We basically said that all we want to know 
we don't want to know whether you're calling witnesses or what they're saying or what exhibit you're looking at or whether really even whether you're investigating or not. We just want to know, was our petition delivered? So then what happened? We briefed the issues on the government's motion to dismiss. Their, the government's opinion in the case was that we did not have standing legal eligibility. Charlotte, do you know what standing is, what the legal eligibility is? It's just whether you have the right to, to present this case. What is that right based on? You need, as a plaintiff, to show in order to have standing, that you have a legally cognizable injury in fact. And that can be from losing money. It could be from being injured. In our view, it could be from losing a family member. Um, it could be, as in Michael O'Kelly, Chief O'Kelly's situation, in my view, from being exposed to toxic substances, which harms your health at the Trade Center. Um, but it also can be from the violation of a constitutional right which is involved in this case, which we haven't, we haven't talked about, but this petition we filed was under the First Amendment of the Constitution. Every citizen has a right to petition any government entity under the First Amendment. So we argued to the Second Circuit that when the U.S. attorney refused to deliver our petition, which is required by law to go through the U.S. attorney, even though it's intended for the grand jury, when that was blocked, by the U.S. attorney that created an obstruction of our First Amendment right and created the required legally cognizable injury. In fact, the only other thing we have to show to have standing is that the government's conduct that we're complaining about in the lawsuit caused that injury, which is obvious in this case because the government refused to deliver the petition. That's the conduct that caused the injury. And we have to show that the court order we're requesting would remedy the injury and that is simply to order the U.S. attorney to submit the petition, stop obstructing. So when we did file our lawsuit in the district court, the government made a motion to dismiss on standing. The judge in the district court uh, agreed with the government and uh, dismissed all of our accounts, including the First Amendment account, on standing grounds, except for the request for grand jury records, which was one of our accounts, which did not really have a standing issue. These people like this, uh, like um, McIlvain who lost his son does not have standing for this? He does have standing. But what you mean is, did the judge find that he does not have standing and the judge found that he does not have standing? Well, how can the judge find that he doesn't have standing if he does have standing? I think we call that a judicial error. Do you think that was done on purpose? I mean, it's so obvious. Standing has been used over the years, maybe over the last few decades, in ways that at least some plaintiff's lawyers believe has been too restrictive and has kept particularly public interest plaintiffs out of court. On what possible basis could a guy who lost a family member on 9-11 not have standing uh, to ask a grand jury to look, if, look into whether or not explosives brought those buildings down? Our position is there's no reasonable grounds for denying standing, particularly under the First Amendment, Keep in mind the purpose of standing. The, the Constitution requires for the federal courts to have jurisdiction that it must be a case or controversy, which the courts have interpreted somewhat reasonably to mean that it shouldn't be a sham lawsuit. The parties really should be adversarial. You know, it shouldn't be two people on the same side of an issue pretending to sue each other to get a ruling that helps them both. That's a legitimate concern. And so there should be real adversaries in the case. 
Now, is anyone really going to question whether family members and ground zero responders who've been harmed by the attacks are not adversarial to the government on a petition to a grand jury to get those matters investigated when the government hasn't done so? I don't think that's a reasonable position to take. Uh, clearly, my clients are adversarial to the government on these issues. The district judge made a fairly straightforward error in the analysis of the standing question because he lumped standing under our First Amendment claim in with standing under the statutory claims. And I haven't told you yet, we had two claims that were mandamus claims, which means a claim to enforce a mandatory duty imposed by law on a government official, which citizens have the right to do. And in this case was about delivering that petition to the grand jury. That was the mandatory duty in question. And the court found that uh, Mr. McElvain, the other family members, the ground zero responders, and the nonprofits each lack standing under every one of those claims. I can't really help you articulate a reasonable basis for the judge doing that. We appealed it, which brought us to the argument we're about to talk about because we felt it was clearly wrong. What we want the Court of Appeals to do is reverse the district court, uh, order the district court to find that we have standing, and either order the district court to order the U.S. attorney to deliver our petition or order the district court to have further proceedings on that question in the district court. I'm going to play the recording of the hearing and ask for your comments as we go along so that the audience can really understand what's going on in this hearing. This is the beginning of the hearing. Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry versus uh, Garland. Let me just make sure counsel are here. Harrison? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, I can see you. And uh, Mr. Hogan? Good morning, Your Honor. Hey, good morning. Now, Mr. Hogan is the government's lawyer. Is that correct? That is correct. So, Mr. Harrison, you've got 10 minutes, but you've reserved two for rebuttal. So that gives you eight out of the gate. So who is speaking there? Uh, Judge Sullivan was speaking. You may proceed. Thanks, Your Honor. The case below was decided on standing. The plaintiffs are three 9-11 family members, two ground zero responders, two nonprofits, and one architect associated with one of those nonprofits. There were four counts in the complaint. As your honors know, standing is to be analyzed count by count. The district court erred below on the standing issue first, by making a fundamental procedural error, which was to consolidate the analysis of standing of counts two, three, and four as if they were essentially the same. What are counts two, three, and four? So two is the First Amendment claim regarding my client's right to submit their petition to the grand jury under the First Amendment as a petition for redress. Counts three and four are the mandamus claims which are my client's uh, attempt to enforce the special grand jury statute duty on the U.S. attorney to deliver the petition to the grand jury. Okay, and so you're basically saying the standing issue should have been separated from the, from the First Amendment claim. Right, okay. Had the court separated those claims and analyzed First Amendment claims separately, the standing analysis would be straightforward. As your honors know, there is a three-part uh, test for Article Three standing. It needs to be shown, injury in fact. The injury needs to be traceable to the conduct of the defendants alleged. And the relief requested from the court 
needs to provide a remedy for that injury if granted. In this case, those requirements are clearly met. The Supreme Court and this court has recognized that even in a First Amendment case where there's not a complete obstruction of a right, but merely the interference, hindering, uh, inconveniencing, discouraging or chilling of a First Amendment exercise that that's Mr. Harrison, is there a case who's asking this question? That would be Judge Lee. That identifies a First Amendment right to present evidence to a grand jury? Not to my knowledge, Your Honor. And that's a key question. The, uh, the government, I think, attempted to get the impression that there was, and I recall they cited a Sixth Circuit case that was unpublished regarding a pro se prisoner, Grattan, I believe. And in that case, uh, which may be the closest Your Honor has in either of the briefs to answer the question you've asked, uh, that case also did not answer the question. Why is she asking this question? Judges make decisions primarily based on what we call precedent, which means decisions that have come before from the same court or a higher court on the same issue are normally followed. Change in law is, is slow, which is good and bad, because, uh, you know, the law is supposed to be the law, and if it's already been established by prior decisions, the next judicial panel to decide the same issue shouldn't really depart from the established law, the established precedent. And most judges, unless there's a question controlled by a statute that has plain language, or the Constitution, which has plain language, which may actually be the case here, but most judges look to see if their decision will be guided by a prior decision of the same court or a higher court, sometimes just another court to give them guidance. So they're not starting from scratch in deciding a complicated or difficult legal question. It's a perfectly legitimate question to ask. Let's continue. Because the pro se uh, plaintiff there, first of all, um, you know, didn't have a lawyer. So the court uh, denied relief there because that pro se plaintiff did not articulate legal authority on the point your honor just asked about. But is that so, a problem for you though? That the fact well, you don't have, there's nothing, there's a, you don't have a case to point to and the cases that have addressed this do seem to be in the solely or, or predominantly in the uh, prisoner access context. And so I, I'm, it seems like it is an issue, but it seems like it's a problem for you. Well, uh, the appellants don't see it as a problem, Your Honor, but it is a challenge for this court because I think this court may be the first, first court ever to decide that question. And the reason uh, that I don't believe as counsel that it's a problem for appellants is that the Supreme Court precedent is clear, not on grand jury petitions specifically, but on First Amendment petitions to redress generally and in many other contexts, that that First Amendment right to petition applies to all branches and all components of the federal government. Counselor, there's no, no question that you have a First Amendment right. Who's talking there? That would be Judge Walker. Okay, so he's saying there's no question that you have a First Amendment right to petition uh, the government. Um, it's a question of whether you're uh, uh, under the First Amendment. The, 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 the only question is what, what is the government's responsibility having received that petition? 
the government, you have no First Amendment right to have the government act on the basis of your petition in the way you choose uh, or, or in any other way, really. I mean, there is no First Amendment right on the part of the petitioner to have the government listen to the petition. You can petition, but uh, the government may or may not act on it. I understand you. That makes no sense to me. Because if you if you have a right to petition, what's the point of having that right if that petition, if, if on the other side, the government isn't isn't uh, mandated or required to review it? It's a, it's a legitimate question. There are a lot of people in the legal academic community who would agree with you, who do agree with you. Um, there's actually a dissenting opinion in a um, Court of Appeals decision from the DC Circuit where a judge very um, eloquently, I thought, expressed the problem that you just articulated. And what the judge said was, you know, we, the DC circuit, our hands are tied by our boss, the US Supreme Court. He didn't say it like I'm saying it. He said it a bit more formally. And, but he said, there is a developing consensus in the legal academic community. And he cited a bunch of law reviews and treatises and so forth that there is a an obligation on the part of the government to listen and answer when a petition is submitted by a citizen under the First Amendment. And I don't think it's unfair to say that the judge went on to say, you know, the next time the Supreme Court has to address that issue, they may well side with the developing academic legal consensus that there is an obligation on the government to listen and respond to a petition. But he said at the moment, we, the DC circuit are bound by the existing decision from our boss, the Supreme Court, which says there is a right to petition, but no obligation to respond on the part of the government. Now, before you ask your next question, let me point out something that may have been missed by listeners to the argument. Judge Walker, when he asked his question, interestingly and correctly, said, there's no doubt there's a right to petition, the question is, after the petition is received, is there an obligation to respond? Now, what the judge may not have realized in asking the question, but I'm pretty sure realized by the time the argument was over, this case is about simply delivery and receipt, not about listening and responding. We win this case if there's an obligation on the U.S. attorney to simply make sure that, that the entity we petitioned, which wasn't just the U.S. attorney, also the grand jury, receives the petition. The, uh, we weren't complaining about the US attorney not responding to our petition. We weren't even complaining about the grand jury not responding. We were complaining because the US attorney had obstructed delivery of our petition, which prevented a government entity from receiving it, the grand jury. I think Judge Walker in his question implied the correct statement of the law that allows us to win this case, which is there is a right to have your petition received by the government entity to which it was intended. It seems ridiculous that that you create a situation where a petition can be submitted, but but then you have to go through to a second step to uh, to have it reviewed. What's the point of going through the exercise of coming up with a petition if you if it's not going to be reviewed? The short answer is the Supreme Court, the highest court in this country, has stated what the developing consensus of legal academics is saying is wrong, that there is no duty on the government to respond to a petition. There is 
a right of a citizen to submit one, which implies, as Judge Walker said correctly, the obligation of the government to receive it, not to read it or respond, but to receive it. Now, our case is about receipt. You're talking about a bigger problem, and I'm happy to talk about it, but it isn't our case, because our goal in this case is to get the evidence in the hands of the grand jury and let the grand jury decide what they want to do. 18 to 23 regular citizens looking at all this scientific evidence of demolition at the Trade Center that killed so many people. Are we concerned that the grand jury is going to decide to thumb their nose at the petition and not even read it? The answer is no. I haven't lost a single night's sleep over that. When they get that petition and see what it is, they're going to read it. The goal here is to get it in their hands. For the government, the grand jury, certainly of citizens who, you know, lived the trauma of 9-11, that every citizen in the United States did, uh, they could very well be hostile to the government's, I, you know, wish that your petition not be considered by a grand jury. The grand jury is independent, constitutionally independent of all other branches of government. The U.S. attorney has treated it over the years improperly as if somehow it's a, an entity captured by the U.S. attorney to do the U.S. attorney's bidding only. That's not what the Constitution says, and that's not why the grand jury was created. The grand jury was created to exercise its own independent judgment of whether there's probable cause to believe a crime was committed and also to prevent the government from unjustly prosecuting someone for political purposes is the shield and the sword function of the grand jury. These are constitutional duties imposed you know, by the constitution that the U.S. attorney has no authority to change. And I think that's why the U.S. attorney doesn't want the grand jury to see the petition because it, once it does, it's the grand jury's decision, not the U.S. attorney's what to do about that evidence. It's weird because this evidence implicates the government in a, in a lie uh, to the American people about what happened on 9-11. And yet, you know, the government is deciding whether you can give this evidence to, to a the grand jury of, you, of citizens. It, it, there's like an inherent conflict of interest there. The law dictates what the U.S. attorney is supposed to do to resolve that problem. It wasn't even a problem before the Constitution because citizens communicated directly with grand juries and for some time after, but the Congress in its wisdom decided to make it a crime for citizens to submit in writing communications to a grand jury. I think Congress knew it was creating a constitutional problem when it did that. So it created this other statute that we've been talking about, at least implicitly, the special grand jury statute, which make, makes it a duty on the U.S. attorney to solve that problem which is when a citizen does report a crime, which now has to go through the U.S. attorney, the U.S. attorney has to deliver it. Otherwise, you've got a blocking of communication to a separate government entity, which isn't allowed under the Constitution. Yeah, but the U.S. attorney is more likely to want to protect the government than, I hate to say this, protect the government than serve citizens if they have uh if they have conflicting interests right well though if you add the last part if there's conflicting interest but let me remind everyone listening including government attorneys who might be watching this that there is a statute that imposes a special obligation on government lawyers beyond what the rest of us have you know we have a certain duties as lawyers to represent our clients zealously within the bounds of the ethics rules and 
government lawyers have that, but they also have another duty, which is regardless of the interest of their client, which is the government, they have a duty to make sure that justice is done in a case and that the law is upheld, including the Constitution, whether or not that benefits their client, the government agency. So the, the government lawyer has not just an agency client, it has the Constitution and the law and justice as a client, and occasionally government lawyers have to be reminded of that. It makes me quite, quite angry, frankly, that um, these family members, these not only the family members, but the first responders, first of all, they were very brave in coming forward, but they're also representing a lot of other people who have been aggrieved by government stonewalling in this issue. And I am quite certain that there are decent people in the government uh, that would, would like to see justice for them. In this country, there is an underlying belief in democracy. And I think this case is a beautiful example of brave people trying to petition their government, finding the legal basis, the First Amendment, I mean, the right to petition your government and hope that you're going to get some kind of response. And then these mandamus arguments, which impose a duty. Now, how is the government going to get around it? If the roadblocks are, are tied to uh, judicial or legal malfeasance, that's a, that, that for which there's no redress, that, that's the problem, I think. that. Well, hang, hang on. I don't understand when you say for which there's no redress. Under the, the Constitution and the laws and the judicial system of this country, for every wrong, there is a remedy and a, a, a right to seek redress and a potential for redress. If corruption gets in the way, then it's our job as citizens to deal with that corruption using the tools at our disposal. That's partially what we may be doing here. Uh, I well, I'm thinking of that, that judge who who made that legal argument that that you know people like like McIlvain, the the father of of, of a victim of 9/11, has no standing. Well, it's it's clearly in our view a wrong decision. We have. But is it malfeasance? Is what I'm asking. I don't know enough to know whether the judge had legitimate legal academic reasons for stating his decision the way he did, it seems clearly wrong for the reasons we've articulated. We do have a remedy, which we're pursuing on appeal, which is the argument you're playing. And we may well get a remedy there. Um, for me, though, the remedy I'm concerned about is a remedy for the family members. And, uh, you know, they still don't know the truth about what happened on 9-11. The grand jury, with their power, could give them answers that they haven't been given yet which is one reason we all want this evidence put in their hands. There is a developing debate between, I think, the academic community on the law regarding the, the obligation of the government to respond to a petition. The courts have not yet embraced at the highest level that position. We may evolve there, but at the moment, I think the case law agrees with your honor. The question though is, how does that apply to this particular situation? And, and the key distinction is the plaintiff's petition was addressed to the special grand jury, seeking a special grand jury investigation, a public report of government misconduct. Um, that it's true that we delivered it to the U.S. attorney, as your honor, I think is contemplating. The U.S. attorney chose not to act on it. The U.S. attorney may well have that uh, discretion. The 
problem lies in not handing it to the other government entity for which it was intended, the special grand jury. And our position isn't that the special grand jury has an obligation to agree with the plaintiffs to even read the petition or respond to it, although we think the grand jury duty, um, the grand jury's duties under the Constitution may require them to read it and evaluate it independently. If they don't, then there's a constitutional problem there. But the, the problem here, Your Honor, is uh, that petition was never delivered. This is just a case about delivery. But, but again, this is a standing issue, right? Okay, so who is this talking? Sullivan? That's, yes. He's trying to jerk the argument back into standing, right? Uh, you, you could put now it that way. Okay, so now we're out of the First Amendment. Now we're talking about 18 U.S.C. 3332. What is that uh, statute? Title 18 is the criminal code. And uh, 3332A, which is what he's trying to say, I don't know if he said it with precision, is the special grand jury statute that we've been talking about that imposes the duty on the U.S. attorney to deliver to the grand jury any citizen report of a federal crime. Okay. All right. So let's keep going. Uh, no, Your Honor. Uh, the, the delivery question applies to both the First Amendment claim and the mandatory duty claims under 18 U.S.C. 3332A. So it's an issue in both. I was answering uh, Judge Walker's question in my last response. But the standing question, which I started with, is straightforward here. An injury, in fact, exists when a First Amendment right is obstructed or even hindered. In this case, the obstruction is the failure to deliver to the grand jury. So it's clearly traceable to the acts of the defendants. And if your honor gives us an order that says to the US attorney, please deliver the petition to the grand jury, we'll have a remedy for that injury. So there is First Amendment, uh, the standing under the First Amendment claim here. So going quickly to the mandamus claims, although one can argue as the, the uh, Southern District of New York did back in 1985, and as I'm sure as your honors have noted, we agree with that 1985 decision. The problem with the 1985 decision is that even, first of all, it's a Southern District case, what is the 1985 decision? Okay, Henry Grand Jury was a similar case where a citizen submitted information to the U.S. Attorney to have it delivered to the Grand Jury regarding federal crimes. The U.S. Attorney did not do that, and the citizen sued uh, under the mandamus statute to force the delivery of the information on the federal crimes to the grand jury and the judge in the Southern District of New York in 1985, the same court we were in, mm -hmm. how many years later, 2020, 2021, uh, decided that yes, the statute is one of those types of laws that creates a right in a citizen, the violation of which by the government creates standing on the part of the citizen to enforce the right. It's a very straightforward analysis. The judge goes into legislative history in some detail and explains, I thought persuasively, why there is no other way to read the statute. Uh, I don't know if the judge ever got to the point of actually saying it, but implied was, if we don't read it this way, we're going to have a problem. Because, you know, what happens to the constitutional role of the grand jury and its independence and citizens under the First Amendment? So that, that case was. Uh, in our favor. It's not binding on uh, anybody, really. 
And second, that predates. He said he said that finding was not binding on anyone. This judge is on the Court of Appeals, which is the boss, the higher level to the district court. So what the district court decides doesn't control what the higher court decides. It's vice okay. versa. Let's keep going. Zaleski, which stands for a totally different proposition and, and, contradict, and overrules it, right? What's Zaleski? Zaleski is a, is a Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision. And Zaleski is a case where a citizen, I believe, again, without a lawyer, acting pro se, sought to actually present information directly to the grand jury himself. In that case, Zaleski did not ask the U.S. attorney to present his information to a grand jury. And I'm about to explain to the judge that that makes a difference in whether that decision controls our, our case. Because he didn't follow the procedure. Is that right? He didn't follow the procedure and the statute and the court said as much in Zaleski and said, therefore, it's a fatal standing defect because to enforce the statute, you have to follow the procedure in the statute or you have no rights under the statute. Okay. No, Your Honor. Zaleski did not address this particular question. Zaleski was decided on the fact that the plaintiff there did not invoke 18 U.S.C. 3332A because he didn't request the U.S. attorney to deliver his information to the grand jury. So the question was never reached. The court did talk about the question in dicta and even then qualified its uh, language about what What's in dicta? In dicta means what you might call a gratuitous or peripheral comment that isn't required to decide the issue in the case. And normally it means probably shouldn't have been said. Okay. Courts are, are only supposed to talk about what's required to decide the case. It's not part of the, the holding or the precedent of the case. It's an aside, basically. Okay. Here's might have been the case had the court reached the question. So this course... This court is going to have to address that question in the first instance in this case. Um, Your Honor, my uh, eight minutes primary argument time is elapsing. Thanks. We'll now hear from Mr. Hogan. Mr. Hogan is the government uh, lawyer, um, assistant U.S. attorney. Good morning. May it please the court. In 2018, plaintiffs presented what they called to be a petition to the U.S. attorney's office for the Southern District of New York setting forth alleged crimes that they thought occurred on the morning of September 11th. And they asked the U.S. attorney to present this information to a grand jury pursuant to 18 U.S.C. 3332A. And this case presents two questions for the court's review, though only one was touched upon in Appellant's opening argument, the first being whether plaintiffs have standing with respect to their allegation that the U.S. attorney allegedly did not present this to a grand jury. And then second, if this has been presented, whether appellants are entitled to any of those grand jury records. So talking about the first of those two issues with respect to standing, uh, of course, it's fundamental that plaintiffs have to demonstrate both harm and redressability for there to be standing. And plaintiffs have asserted a bunch of different theories with respect to standing, um, the First Amendment being one of them. But quickly, they've also asserted other claims that were not mentioned, asserted other theories that were not mentioned in the opening argument with respect to bounties from the State Department if terrorists have brought justice or special interests about transparency and accountability of 9-11 or prosecuting other people to receive justice. So the government would submit that for all the reasons in its brief, those have been repeatedly rejected by court. Could you talk about what he's saying here? He's trying to say that the case law is sort of unanimous in saying that none of the grounds we raised give standing. He's 
he means in the context of this case where you're trying to enforce the special grand jury statute. So if you didn't get that part of it, he's saying the case law doesn't recognize standing to enforce the, the grand jury statute. He isn't focused yet on the First Amendment argument, which is going to be hard for him to deal with. Okay. Talking specifically about the, the First Amendment issue, that, that doesn't somehow fundamentally change the calculus here as plaintiffs want the court to believe, simply because, as, as Judge Lee properly noted, there simply is no case that the government has identified or seemingly appellants that has ever held there is this First Amendment right to communicate and petition directly with the grand jury. So he's basically saying, since there's no precedent, you know, it shouldn't happen, right? Uh, that's a reasonable reading of what he said. Um, there are some fine points of what he said that, that are worth picking up on. One is the Indies said communicate directly with the grand jury, which is not what this case is about. We are not asserting a right to give a written petition ourselves to the grand jury. We are following the statutory procedure of going through the U.S. attorney that Congress, in its wisdom, decided was the proper way to communicate with the grand jury. So why so is he bringing it up? Because there are cases out there that say citizens cannot directly communicate with the grand jury, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Congress made it a crime. So those cases are distinguishable because we're not trying to do that, which is part of the confusion he's creating in his argument. Uh, the cases he's talking about are not. Uh, there are a few cases that talk about going through the U.S. attorney, but they're not First Amendment cases, which is his problem. But do you think he's he knows that? He knows there are no First Amendment cases about standing to have a petition given to a special grand jury communicated through a U.S. attorney by the special grand jury statute. We are pretty much the one that's forced the issue, and there uh, there's no legal way around. Why is he bringing up these other cases where it is uh, criminal and not in not in well, in law school? They teach you, particularly for plaintiff's lawyers. I went to a public interest focused law school. They say, you know, when you deal with your opponents and defendants lawyers, you know, the law may be on their side to some extent. They'll argue the law. The facts may be on their side to some extent. They'll argue the facts. But in situations where neither the law or the facts are on their side, expect them to stand up and just pound the table. And pound the table means to do a distraction, say something that's not relevant, say something that's not, maybe something that's emotional. And here, what the table pounding is, is talking about cases that don't apply to this case. Wow. Okay, let's keep going. Judge Cabranes held, held as much when he was a district judge in In New Haven Grand Jury. The Third Circuit has said so in Baranowski. The DDC has said so. He's still talking about cases that are not applicable. Let me just give you an example. He's talking about an 11th Circuit case. I believe he's citing to Morales. It had to do with um, a Cuban Air Force incident where they shot down two civilian planes killing people. And one of the plaintiffs in the case lost his brother, I believe, in that incident. His brother was killed. And the 11th Circuit, in my view, to their discredit, found that the man who lost his brother did not have standing to sue. Oh, wow. On what basis, though? Their basis for it on that particular point was that even though he lost his brother, he had no more of an interest than any member of the public to seek a prosecution, a criminal prosecution. That that's sort of a general interest for everybody to see that the criminal laws are enforced. And they did note that, you know, and that was one of the ways the case is distinguishable from ours. And you have to think about this. Some of these cases, and this is one, the plaintiff's purpose is to get a prosecution of a particular individual or individuals. 
And that's why they petition to get a prosecution and they name the person they believe is guilty. A lot of folks don't realize we didn't do that in our petition. There's no name. There's not a single name in our petition about who we accuse. We're leaving that to the grand jury to investigate. Our petition is, here's the evidence that a crime was committed. It's never been investigated. You, the grand jury, should investigate it and determine if someone should be prosecuted. So our purpose is not to prosecute any particular person. That's why our case is distinguishable from this case that the government's lawyer is citing to. Yeah, but even uh, in this in this case that he's citing about the Cuban guy who, who lost his brother, his brother. I, I don't yeah. understand why his brother wouldn't have standing to go after whoever yeah. killed. Well, that makes two of us. And that's not about, you know, that's not what our case is, is being decided on. But it, it may be an underlying issue. I mean, why wouldn't family members have standing? It may be analogous to this case where it's probably what the government wants to say. You know, a man lost his brother. He didn't have standing. 9-11 family members lost family members. They don't have standing. It's not that simple. God, cases it, are different. I mean, the legal so stuff aside, it just seems so unconscionable. I agree know? with that. As I well. mean, I would put that lawyer in the position of any of these these 9-11 victims. Right. You know, and if he lost his wife or his child on 9-11, he wouldn't want to get to the culprits. Instead, he's invoking. I, I don't know. I know. Well, the human aspect is compelling. I, I agree with it. All I'm saying is we win our case without having to go there. Uh, if we have to go there, we should win it as well. I would agree with you. Um, I mean, and there are some other reasons this case is distinguishable from ours, meaning it doesn't control our decision. Uh, in this case, they cited Zaleski, the Second Circuit case the judge just asked me about, which I explained why that case doesn't control, because the duty under the statute wasn't invoked by the plaintiff who didn't have right. a lawyer there. He probably had no idea. <laughs> And, and the Sixth Circuit case that the judge asked about, which I explained, which was Grattan, was a pro se prisoner. And the reason he lost wasn't because he was wrong. Sixth Circuit didn't say that. They said he had not articulated legal authority to support his position. He didn't have a lawyer. He's not right. a lawyer. All right, let's keep going. Sibley versus Obama, both of those last two cases being in the 33, 32A context. The Sixth Circuit's had some Grattan, so, and all of this, Your Honors, uh, and I guess I would also know, Your Honors, in, in, in a related context, this circuit has held that a defendant doesn't have the right to personally appear before a grand jury that is investigating it. And that's if he has the second circuit. Okay, yeah. that's beside the point. This case isn't about a request to personally appear. It's about delivering a written petition by way of the U.S. attorney. So why mention it? It's a confusion tactic. So all of this leads one to believe that there is no First Amendment right there. And without that right. Is that a, does it, I don't know, that sounds to me like a giant leap of logic here. I would say so. The U.S. attorney just said, and he didn't probably want to spell it out, but what he said meant no citizen in this country has a right under the First Amendment to petition for redress a particular government entity called the grand jury, federal grand jury. That's what he just said in shorthand. And those cases don't say, none of the cases he cited say that. They're not First Amendment cases. And do you think the judges know that? There's this underlying concern on the part of the federal government 
that once you acknowledge these rights, it's going to open the floodgates. We can deal with that later. But yeah. that, uh, you know, that uh, prosecutors have the right, um, the discretion, supposedly, to decide which case to bring, for instance, to the grand jury, which not. The problem there is there's a statute that says it's mandatory. It's not discretionary. But nonetheless, this is working, I think, in the back of their minds. Like, oh, my God, if we grant this, the floodgates are open and all sorts of of people are going to come forward to seek redress. And uh, there's you know, got I to be some. I mean, 9-11 alone. I'm not, I'm not for 9-11 alone. Can you imagine the hordes that would come? Well, from? you know, I don't agree There's with that. There's an answer to that. There's, There's an, an answer. answer. Well, the answer is historically it hasn't played out that way. You know, floodgates are, have been opened in a number of ways. Civil rights statutes, uh, environmental rights to sue, and courts have managed it and to good public interest benefit. So it's a, it's a hypothetical problem. There aren't that many citizens who have the wherewithal to do what we're doing or citizens' groups, for that matter. Uh, the gates may open, but there's going to be no flood. Do you think the judges are thinking in their minds when they're hearing what this guy is saying that these case decisions do not apply? And, oh, he just said that citizens don't have the right to petition a grand jury through the <laughs> U.S. attorney. I think the judges either do or will understand that the cases the government is citing don't apply to this case. Okay, so let's keep going. Obviously, there is no harm that plaintiffs have suffered that gives rise to standing. <laughs> Did he what just about say the First that? Amendment? Yeah, he said there's no harm that the plaintiffs have suffered. So first, you got the First Amendment right, which has been totally blocked, which the case law is very clear on. Even if you chill, discourage a First Amendment exercise, you have standing. This is a complete obstruction. So that statement is just off the wall for that reason alone. And then you got the reason that that all of us are concerned about underlying this, which is what about the family members yeah. who lost their loved ones? Okay, keep going. And and all of this, all of these cases, so concluding, it is for good reason. As as Judge Cabron has noted in this New Haven case when he was a district judge, to allow a member of the public to directly communicate with the grand jury would uh, it open it up. So he's talking about the New Haven case again, and he's talking about to allow a member of the public to directly, I emphasize the word directly, communicate with the grand jury, which we have not requested. I mean, we're, I think we invited the U.S. attorney to invite us to talk to the grand jury, or we invited the grand jury to invite us, but that's not what this case is about. It's just about oh, delivery. He has repeated that twice. Uh, because the case law helps him on, on that. The case law helps him on that one. It just isn't this case. Okay, let's keep going being used, quote, by hooker, by crook, to allow people to potentially use the grand jury for improper purposes, as he said, personal vendettas, malicious prosecutions. Stop. And it would. Yep. Okay. Let's think about this for a minute. Here's the government concerned that citizens will cause malicious prosecutions, even yeah. though there can be no problem. Let's think about this now. The law, for better or worse at the moment, and the U.S. Attorney knows this better than anybody, is that you're not going to get a prosecution unless the U.S. Attorney signs an indictment and proceeds to prosecute it. That is one thing, for better or worse, the law is putting in the hands of the U.S. Attorneys at the moment. So how can there be a floodgate of 
politically motivated improper prosecutions without getting the U.S. attorney to sign the indictment and pursue the prosecution. It can't happen. Citizens cannot cause that to happen under the procedure that exists. Okay, and he, now. He's got to know that. He knows, oh, he, um, that's a bit of an understatement. He's in the, the office that does that. So the reason we have a grand jury, even before the Constitution, and the reason the framers and founders put it in the Constitution was to prevent political prosecutions by the government, not to prevent improper political influence by citizens. So even if the U.S. attorney didn't have a complete protection against this, which they do, as I've just explained, it's contrary to the constitutional purpose of a constitutionally constituted independent branch of the government to deny the right of a citizen to petition a grand jury on the basis that a citizen by way of the U.S. attorney might influence what the grand jury does. The grand jury has a different purpose to prevent the government from unjustly prosecuting. So there's no basis in reality for that concern in procedure or in the constitution. And he knows it. Oh, yeah. Undermine the very reason that the grand jury found its way into the Bill of Rights to, to protect the rights of the innocent. So your honors, the government would just submit that. And it's- Stop, 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 stop. Other I say, protect the rights of the innocent. That's a true statement. He forgot to finish the sentence from political prosecutions by the government. That's, <laughs> that's why the grand jury was created. Those are the rights of the innocent we're talking about. It's a bit out of context. Well, it's a sin of omission right there. Yeah. Let's keep going. There's of standing that plaintiff has asserted, but to the extent plaintiff is attempting to hang their hat on the First Amendment, the government would just submit that there is no First Amendment right there. And accordingly, it was proper for the district court to, as, as appellants noted, to consolidate these standing issues into one analysis because if there is no First Amendment right, then you have to look elsewhere for the harm that could give rise to standing. So stop there. Keep in mind that Judge Walker, in a question earlier in the argument, said there's no question you have a First Amendment right. The question is whether there's a duty to respond. And here's the government saying there's no First Amendment right. Okay. But what he means, what the government's lawyer means is there's yet to be a court decision where the court has to answer specifically to a grand jury whether the First Amendment right to petition, which the Supreme Court has said applies to all branches of the government, all entities of the government, no exceptions, whether there is an exception. And the government is asking the Second Circuit to create an exception for the first time in history to the right to petition the government. And they want grand juries taken out of the First Amendment. That's shocking. I know. And turning to the second of these two issues, just briefly, Your Honor, uh, the grand jury materials, um, it's of course fundamental that a grand jury operates in secrecy, and this is a tradition older than our nation, this, this court has said as much. And, and the government would just submit that even though there are exceptions related to this grand jury secrecy requirement that are set forth in Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6E, they are all plainly inapplicable here. The only one that potentially applies is this idea that a person can get records in connection with another judicial proceeding of some type. Um, but even there, you have to show that there's some type of injustice that will arise in this other proceeding that outweighs the grand jury secrecy concerns. And here, not only- What is he saying? Now he's taking the story to, well- It's a different, different issue. Right. He didn't, he didn't make clear he was switching to count one. 
Okay, count one is our request to get certain grand jury records released to the public just enough to know whether our petition was delivered with the evidence or not. And what he's arguing now is there's a general rule of secrecy regarding what happens with the grand jury. And he's trying to convince the court that our request, even for a single page of grand jury records to show our petition was or was not submitted, violates the secrecy rule, even if nothing was submitted. And even if their only disclosure was, we've given the grand jury nothing, that somehow that violates a secrecy rule. This makes no sense because if you have a legal right to have your petition delivered to the grand jury, uh, you may not, you may not be allowed to be privy to the grand jury's deliberations or whatever. You don't, but you don't have a right to know if they received your petition. That's what we're talking about here. Right. And he's saying, no, you don't even have that right. That's what he's saying. But is that correct? No. I mean, it makes sense. Let me, first of all, it is illogical, but the law and logic are not always, uh, you know, identical. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the law allows certain things to be released about grand jury proceedings. We haven't asked to know whether the grand jury is investigating, who they're calling as witnesses, what exhibits they've looked at, other than whether our petition and our exhibits were simply handed to them. So as I've explained to the court, uh, a longstanding exemption or exception to secrecy requirements is for a witness to be able to talk about what they testified to before a grand jury. Every witness is allowed to do that. There are reasons for that exception. And my argument is there's no harm from telling the complaining witness, which is my clients, all of us who submitted the petition, there's no harm from telling us or letting us tell the world that what we submitted was submitted. It's like a witness saying, here's what I testified to. Right. So, so you know, we submitted, if we, if we had gone to the grand jury in person and we had explained verbally everything that's in our petition and walked out of the grand jury room, we could repeat all of that verbatim to the press and there'd be no problem with grand jury secrecy. So what's the difference? The fact that we went through a statutorily prescribed procedure to go through the U.S. attorney as a matter of respecting the law and courtesy means we can't talk about what we, the complaining witness, submitted to the grand jury? I don't think so. And we that's but what it, this argument is about. I th- Oh, I thought what he was saying was you don't even have a right to know if the grand jury has received your petition. He, he is saying that. But I mean, we all know, the world knows what's in our petition at this point. It's been right. on our website. I okay. don't think the government wants to talk about the fact that we put it on our website because that's one of the exceptions to secrecy. We don't know which way the grand jury would go or what their findings would be. The special grand jury does have, as I mentioned, an, op- an option, even if they don't make a proposed indictment to issue a report on government misconduct. That may be one of the reasons the government doesn't want the grand jury to look at this evidence right. because that, that is a possible outcome. Right. Okay, let's keep going. Second, Mr. Hogan. Uh, of course. Judge Gardefee sort of treated this like it was a 12B6 uh, and dismissed uh, for failure to state a claim. Typically, requests for grand jury material are petitions that are then left to the discretion of the court and there's standard. Who's speaking there? That is Judge Sullivan. Review would be abuse of discretion. Um, so, which should we be doing here? Uh, Your Honor, I think that 
perhaps a fundamental issue here is that in the primary case that the appellants rely on from the Ninth Circuit, even in, in that case about grand jury materials, they noted a potential jurisdictional issue with respect to the fact that the court is the entity that holds these grand jury materials. And given this application was not made to the court, but rather seemingly stop, to the attorney's stop, office. Stop, yeah. stop, stop. Okay. I can't even believe you said that. The, the U.S. attorney just said that there's a jurisdictional problem, meaning the court wouldn't even have the power to entertain our request for grand jury records because we made our request for grand jury records to the U.S. attorney and not to the court. That is, you know, completely wrong. Our petition to the U.S. attorney wasn't about releasing grand jury records. It was about giving our petition of evidence to the grand jury. When we sued in federal court, we added a count, count one, that requested the court to give us grand jury records, not the U.S. attorney. What he just said there is black and white, completely wrong. Okay, let's proceed. In some way to disclose these materials, that could indeed be a jurisdictional issue that, as I said, was identified in this Ninth Circuit case, but has not been raised in this litigation thus far. But to, to specifically address Your Honor's question, it is indeed the case that it is an abuse of discretion analysis when you are determining whether the, the lower court properly relied upon or properly analyzed the particularized need analysis in a way. So that would be the government's position that it is indeed abuse of discretion, even though... Stop, stop there for a minute. He's saying that the Court of Appeals, when it looks at this question and whether the district court erred in not releasing grand jury records to us, what kind of a legal standard does the Court of Appeals apply to that type of alleged mistake? We alleged the mistake by the district court. Is it de novo review where the Second Circuit puts itself in the position of the trial judge and decides fresh from scratch who was right and who was wrong? Or is it an abuse of discretion where a lot of deference is given to the trial judge and the trial judge is only going to be reversed if it's a pretty clear error? Now, that's what the question, that's the question being argued there, the standard review. The problem here is there was a procedural error below, which is hidden in this discussion about the standard of review. Whether or not the district court should have released grand jury records to us is the question under the Second Circuit standard gets decided by looking at several factors and balancing the interest, which are questions of fact. But the judge dismissed our complaint on what was referred to as a Rule 12b-6. For those who don't know, that's a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, which means everything alleged in the complaint has to be taken as true. There is no fact determination. There's no trial, not even a summary judgment with affidavits. And then you decide if everything the plaintiff said in the complaint is true, do they win on this count or can they lose even taking everything they said is true? In our case, I don't know how they could read our complaint and accept everything we said is true and not give us at least a page of grand jury records to answer this question. So there's a procedural mistake hiding in this, and it's probably because the district court didn't really follow the Second Circuit's procedure for determining how to release grand jury records. But there are fact questions. Go ahead. Maybe you could help people understand what even one page from the grand jury would indicate. 
So if there was a ministerial record, say, ministerial meaning not a piece of evidence the grand jury was going to investigate or consider, but just sort of a record-keeping clerical piece of paper that said on December 14th, making up the date, uh, 2018, the U.S. attorney conveyed the following list of materials to the grand jury for their consideration. A, plaintiff's petition of July 2018. B, C, D, E, listing the exhibits. Okay, that single piece of paper, which would sort of be a cover for what documents were being conveyed to the grand jury for their review, would have answered the question. Was our petition submitted or not? There could have been. And by the way, list of exhibits, I mean, it's quite extensive. There's about uh, 60, guess... 16, yeah. There's a lot to review there, and there's a reason for that. There's a lot of evidence. That's what it is. It's evidence that has been submitted. So the judges have apparently, I would think, or their law clerks have seen the evidence. It was submitted. Um, it was actually submitted as an attachment to our complaint. And so it's in the appeal record. And it's significant. And it's, the evidence it's, is significant. Well, it's, it's compelling. Right. As the petition explains, I mean, you've got multiple lines of credible evidence converging on the same conclusion. You've got many first responders eyewitnessing explosions, hearing explosions, reporting that in formal interviews by the fire department in New York, folks who were there on the scene on 9-11 who survived. You've got a laboratory analysis of the dust showing high-tech explosives, exploded and unexploded residue. You've got uh, government observations of extreme temperatures that can't be explained by jet fuel or building fires, but can be explained by high-tech explosives and incendiaries. We could go down the list the evidence is, as we say in the law, dispositive, meaning there is no really other explanation for that evidence. It's, it's not just like it gives a lot of leads for an investigation. If a grand jury really digested that, uh, they would know that a crime was committed. They would then start investigating who did it. Okay, let's keep going. So, Your Honors, the government's ultimate point here is simply that without any other type of judicial proceeding where these records are needed to outweigh this, the secrecy concerns that are so fundamental to the grand jury, um, plaintiffs aren't entitled to these records. He's saying uh, receiving proof that the of, of the grand jury receiving uh, your petition is covered by the secrecy uh, covering uh, grand jury petitions uh, uh, deliberations. So you, you can't even have that. He is saying that, and we cited a, a nice circuit case that talks about a distinction between ministerial records and substantive grand jury proceedings and holds that they're different animals and the secrecy, which makes sense for not disclosing witness names and what they're saying, at least not having allowing the government to disclose, disclose that, that's one thing. But ministerial records about just the routine business of the grand jury, uh, the Ninth Circuit said those records are not protected by the secrecy requirements. And we've asked the Second Circuit to adopt that approach here. We don't know if they will. Okay. I mean, unless the court has other questions, the government is happy to uh, rest on its papers uh, going further. And uh, thank you very much for your time. All right. Seeing no further questions, we'll hear again from Mr. Harrison for two minutes of rebuttal. Yes. Thank you, Your Honor. The first point is that the government's concerned about improper influence by citizens to a grand jury really wasn't the intent of the Constitution in creating the grand jury as an independent government entity 
the goal is for the grand jury to serve as a protection against the prosecutors, to protect against a politically motivated prosecution, an unjust prosecution. The grand jury cannot serve that constitutional function if it never sees the evidence. If your honor gives the U.S. attorney what it wants in this case, it will be able to decide to essentially withhold uh, inculpatory evidence from a political ally. Inculpatory evidence. Yeah, I didn't say that grammatically correct. Inculpatory means incriminating evidence. When I said from an ally, I meant regarding an ally. So that okay. was a word, a word error on my part. Okay, that so, okay. That... It doesn't want prosecuted and withhold exculpatory evidence from a political adversary. Exculpatory meaning? Going innocence. Let's talk about that because I mean, yes, the case law is pretty clear that a defendant, the, the target of a grand jury investigation doesn't have the right to come in uh, and provide his side of the story, right? That's Judge Sullivan, correct? Correct. Not in person, but the First Amendment would give a right to submit evidence and a petition, even for a defendant. I don't know that that's ever been decided, but this First Amendment petition right, the Supreme Court has never carved out an exception for the grand jury or any other government entity. The Constitution creates the grand jury as a government entity, and the Supreme Court decisions say all government entities may be petitioned. Is there, a, is there, can I just ask you, I mean, it seems as if I, I'm. Who, who is this speaking? You mean the, the judge starting to ask? Yes. Uh, judge Lee. Okay, Judge Lee. I don't understand what uh, sort of limiting principle there would be with your argument. Is, is it the case then that every organization or every individual uh, who has an interest in a particular topic is, is if they present to the present something, they're entitled to have the government present that to a grand jury. Like, what are the bounds of this, of this uh, right? The way that you're 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 putting it forward. So and I could just say there's an example of opening the floodgates. You see that they're concerned about. I think we'll have to be developed by case law and maybe by the U.S. Attorney and and pragmatically managing the task. I doubt if the floodgate is gonna open like the government may be concerned if citizens are allowed to communicate. Before there was a constitution, citizens did communicate with grand juries. You know, right, but so if this is, here, this is a, I'm sorry, just let me, I, I can just, yes. this is a constitutional right. And so if you're saying that this right means that there is this ability to petition, to have these petitions have evidence brought by individual citizens or organizations to the grand jury, yeah. Um, I don't think that it would be appropriate just for, you know, practical reasons to, to place limits on that. What's something that we can look to as here's how we limit, here are the limits of this right? Well, the courts have regulated the access to the courts component of the First Amendment in terms of uh, being able to dismiss frivolous lawsuits, uh, having certain preliminary reviews for prisoners' actions, uh, dismissal on standing, certainly come to mind it's not just as a note the judge has asked me how do you can you give the court any guidance on how they would manage this floodgate opening problem and i and i was saying look it's already been done in other contexts okay and one of those other contexts is the right to access the courts which means lawsuits and the courts have come up with a number of ways of managing the burden of lawsuits which is the right typically the right to 
access the courts under the First Amendment. So it's become manageable, whether all those, what would be the word, uh, managing rules to limit the floodgates for lawsuits are appropriate is a whole other question for another day. Right. Some of them, some of them probably are. Some of them may have gone too far. I'm sure that they would not consider a case regarding the loss of lives of 3,000 people from the uh, collapse of the towers as frivolous. Right. And I mean, I, I can't reiterate enough that what happened on 9-11 has to be one of the most consequential events in modern American history. So I think that this should be taken into consideration. Um, and Mick has said, I'm sure there are ways of determining uh, what comes in and what doesn't. But this case, this case? Wouldn't be screened out. Okay, so let's hear Mick's final words here. Impossible task. You know, the case, one of the cases the government cited, TransUnion, which is a very recent Supreme Court case of last year, um, points out that, you know, there may be an inconvenience and a burden in some cases from the exercise of constitutional rights. But if, if an inconvenience to the government comes up against protecting the right, the inconvenience has to give way and the right has to be honored. And that's our position here. It is a... Um, Pretty much a new question, Your Honor, for for each of your honors to struggle with and decide. I wish you the best of luck with that. I think it's an important public interest question. Um, but I, believe I, have one, I have one more question. Who is that, Walker? Yes, Judge oh. Walker. Traditionally, the grand jury has been seen as really a, a, an arm uh, of the court, the district court. The district court impanels the grand jury, the district court resolves any question, legal questions that arise during grand jury proceedings. Uh, the, uh, uh, the results of any grand jury proceedings, whether it's a report or an indictment are presented to the district court. Um, and uh, it seems to me that um, I, I'm, I was surprised you, you decided to proceed by, by petitioning the government or sending a petition to the government to, to, to or the grand jury, as opposed to just going into court and asking for, for relief that it's way. A, it's a fascinating question, Your Honor. Uh, that option exists under exactly the same statute that we use to appeal to the U.S. attorney. The difference is, as I read the statute, and I'd be happy to be corrected by Your Honor, there is a mandatory duty imposed by Congress on the U.S. attorney to relay reports of crimes by citizens to the grand jury. I did not notice language in that statute or anywhere else that imposes a mandatory duty on the district court to relay evidence to a grand jury. I believe that's within the district court's discretion. And at the moment, that is the reason we did not go down that path. So that is the end of the... Uh... So you left out the two most important words. Uh, yes, what, was, what were those words? At the end, Judge Walker, I think, said, I see. Oh. <laughs> They're important just, I think, to show that we actually had a dialogue going with the judges, which is what you want to achieve in an oral argument where the judges are listening. To, they're asking good questions and they're listening to your answers. That's the best you can hope for. 
I think, in an oral argument. And I think these judges did ask good questions. And I, my impression is they were listening. This is an issue of great gravity, whether citizens have a right to have a government body, which a grand jury is, hear their reports of crimes. Right. That's a that's huge. That's huge. And people don't even know that that these proceedings are going on, that this is actually on the line right now through this case. Yes, I share your concern on that. Um, part of the responsibility for that sort of low profile, I think, is um, the responsibility of the national media, which has not given proper attention to this, not only this issue, but this lawsuit in particular, and they should have uh, for the reasons you're articulating. I want to come back once again to who, to who are the plaintiffs. We can't forget that. And the media ignoring it bothers me intensely. In, well, fact, in fact, there has been this effort to paint anybody who raises questions, including the family members, as conspiracy theorists. You know, these are people, there's a whole book that was recently written about, about what they went through. It's called Unanswered Questions. It's oh, been yeah. recently published. And you go through the uh, incredible uh, obstruction of their, of their questions. And we need to remind people that when you lose somebody in a, in a terrible incident such as this, as one person said, not knowing is worse than knowing. It lives with them for the rest of their lives, not knowing. And what they need is closure. And, if, and, and they have sought closure in so many different ways. They've petitioned the government. They've, they asked for a commission. The commission was very flawed, that, that's clear. Uh, and so now they're going to the courts. Oh, the, and then you have uh, very professional people, architects and engineers who have risked, risked their professions and uh, maybe not their lives, but they're, you know, they've come forward and they say there's serious problems with the official explanation. And yet they're branded and as conspiracy theorists and they're debunked. And now we have lawyers coming forward and, and the architects and engineers are grateful for the fact that now we've got lawyers that are taking this, taking the evidence that they've found to a court and uh, a significant court. Um, not now in the second most influential court in the country. So I would say it, it would behoove uh, the media to pay more attention to this case and, and we'll see how it comes out. When is this decision gonna come down? Well, typically it's a few months. It can be a year or more. In the rare case, it can be two years. There is no deadline set by law. It could be next week. Do you have any final comments? Well, I think if the national media would give the court the detailed attention that you've given it, Christina, the world would be a better place and the public interest would be served. The public would be better informed. And so I encourage members of the media out there who are still thinking of themselves as investigative reporters 
to do take a deep look at this case and report it to the public and the underlying evidence in the petition, which the media, national media, really hasn't done yet. Which it hasn't done, even though some of its reporters at the time of the incident um, said things, witness reports that uh, support the allegations of a uh, controlled explosion. Demolition, sorry, controlled yes. demolition. Yeah. There, there, there's yeah, a lot of news reports that there's evidence of that. So that makes it kind of awkward, doesn't it? They did report it in the moment as their actual observations and impressions, and then it became uh, somehow uh, an issue they weren't allowed to touch after that, which is a concern. As you know, Christina, as you know, uh, I have a rule of thumb because I'm both an investigative journalist and an attorney, but my with my investigative journalist hat on, my rule of thumb is whenever there's a catastrophe, stay glued to the TV for the first 24 hours, because that's when the witness reports, that's when the witnesses are interviewed by the media, and they say things. And yeah, witnesses can get things wrong, but if you have enough witnesses with corroborating evidence, then you should take that very seriously. And, and in fact, that is part of the evidence in this case, that they heard the explosions. There's plenty of evidence on that. And even the, re, and even the press reporting on it, even Dan Rather reporting on it. I think that if there are major court decisions that um, open the door to getting more definitive uh, evidence from the government side, uh, I think I think attention will be paid. You know, the press can turn on a dime. It could turn on a dime. Something can happen and, and next thing you know, it's okay to talk about who did what, you know, the truth about uh, what happened on 9-11. I mean, I, maybe I'm dreaming in color right now, but one can always be hopeful. Well, anyway, if they can do it about the January 6th incident, why yeah. can't they do it about this? Well, they could. They could. Hope springs eternal. Thank you so much for coming on, both of you. Yeah, thank you, Christina. Appreciate your questions.